Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. I'm so excited to welcome Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson to the Podcast One family. Listen as Mike Tyson, the baddest man on the planet, pours his soul into conversations with fascinating minds, celebrities, and athletes. Along with his cosmic millennial sidekick and former NFLer, Eben Britton, Kid Dynamite dives deep into the issues impacting us all today. This podcast will change the way you see the world. Check out their first two episodes featuring Evander Holyfield and Tip T.I. Harris. Don't miss Hot Boxing with Mike Tyson every week on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss of The Athletic, and we had a great conversation, went in a series of different directions from his takeaways from the season so far to load management and the way the NBA runs the season length to his thoughts on the 2020 NBA draft class and the Warriors and a lot more. Really great conversation brought to you by betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Episode runs about an hour 10. Lots of good stuff in here. Hope you really enjoy it. Thank you so much for coming on. I am happy to be on, Danny. There are a lot of different topics. A lot of them are are discrete topics that I want to get through with you. But before we get into that, I mean, you and I talk basketball a fair amount, but we haven't really talked much about really the broad scopes of this season. So I wanted to start with opening the floor to you of just, we're a little bit over a month in now. What are your, what what has struck you so far about this season? Hmm. Well, on the one hand, for the overall interest level, which is something that I'm always monitoring, I, I like thinking of basketball um, as an aesthetic product. I have an interest. I'm often asked, why do you care about TV ratings? And I think part of it is I'm a bit of a booster for the sport. I think this is the best sport in the world. It pains me when I see the NBA not taking the measures I see fit to properly promote it. And in that broad sweeping view, it's a bit of a down year. It would appear that ratings have slipped and they've slipped for a reason. You have players increasingly uh, resting and missing games. Finally, finally, we got to see Kawhi and Paul George play together, and hopefully we see more of that. But there's this will-he-won't-he effect with Kawhi Leonard. I'm not criticizing how they're handling him. I want to make it clear. If he has an injury, if he has something degenerative, then that's what they have to do. But the public is getting the sense that You can't count on the star showing up when you buy a ticket. And that seems to have really come to the fore. Now, on the positive side of the ledger, there are some young players really popping and really just uh, perhaps breaking out. We'll see if they maintain it. We'll see if they actually blossom into full-fledged stars. But whether it's uh, Pascal Siakam... Um, I'm thinking about the the Wiggins phenomenon. I mean, how how surprising is that? Uh, Brandon Ingram, for instance, uh, and also Trey Young, looking like just one of the most captivating players in the league in his second season. Uh, Luca looked like a star in his first season, but he's taken it to another level. So you are seeing this emerging next generation, and that's very exciting. But it seems to be very exciting to the league pass addicts and maybe not the public writ large. Yeah, I, I want to talk more about the the kind of the load management fan enthusiasm part of it later. But what you got at at the end there is, I think, a really important takeaway so far for me from the season. I, I did a, a breakout podcast. I actually did two. We recorded for like four hours with Ben Taylor before the start of the season. And one of the elements that I was trying to convey in that is how, while it was true that we didn't really have any other than Giannis clear-cut 
what I would call pre-prime MVP eventual candidates, you know, that type of guy. I was hopeful that somebody would break out just because there were some intriguing young players. And I think Luca is, is at the front of that group. You know, he's looked like maybe not an MVP candidate this year, though he's getting closer to the conversation basically every day. But also because remembering that players in their early 20s generally get better. And so if Luca and Trey and some of these other intriguing young talents keep getting better, then they can get in that conversation. And then the other one that's really interesting is what you were getting at before with Andrew Wiggins and Brandon Ingram. And so players with physical talent sometimes take time to figure it out. And to, to get and that doesn't to say that either one of those guys, what they've done so far is quote unquote real or that it's going to continue. But worth remembering that whether we're talking those players or Markel Fultz or disappointing blue chip guys from all over the spec from like all over the last couple of years, that Maybe they don't become superstars, but they can become more useful players. And another example of that for me is Jabari Parker. Like Parker to me is yeah. in the best he's in the best situation to succeed that he's been so far in his career. And yeah, he's probably not going to be that guy, you know, the the one who was drafted so highly and, and so touted with his skill set offensively and everything else. But worth remembering that guys in their early twenties get a lot better. Yes. I think this is one of the lessons of the modern NBA and I wrote about it in my article today, subscribe to The Athletic. It was on just trying to set the parameters of uh, the Warriors' probabilities, as I call it, where this probably can happen, this probably can't happen. And one of the tricky things for the Warriors going forward is that they likely need another wing. The problem is that the wing position is the most coveted of all, in all of basketball. And then the problem beyond that, as we are discussing right here, is that if you draft a wing, it seems to take a long time for that guy to develop into a productive player. Once he becomes a productive player, he's one of the most valuable assets in all of basketball or valuable performers in all of basketball. But in order to wait for that, you have to wait for him effectively losing you games, it would seem. So you see a guy – I'm trying to remember the the amount of years. I mean let's say Wiggins is really popping right now. That's a half decade of unproductive high-volume play before we get there, right? Uh, Brandon Ingram, I think this is his what, fourth season? I'm trying to remember. Is it his fourth season? Yes, that's, it is. This is his fourth. Yeah, so that, that sounds about right. So finally, after three seasons of fairly inefficient high-volume play where he's talented – Boom. Now he looks now he looks awesome. Um I mean well, I and, then, probably... uh, and to interject, you can also have the counter, which is sometimes the players who, who do really well early, then they end up regressing a little bit to the mean, yeah. like, you know, the second season for Jason Tatum, the second season for Donovan Mitchell, you know, both guys had such huge starts. Not every player that starts really strong continues that way and, and both those players can still grow. Remember, there's still young guys in their twenties that can improve. Like, you know, we've We've that's, seen- a, that's a great point, and it's one that I alighted from my article because I was talking about how long does it take you to get to all-star impact. Those guys looked like they were completely on their way um, at the very beginning and then got derailed and got off course versus if we look at the counterexample with bigs. Anthony Davis, pretty much all-star impact second season. Carl Anthony Towns, pretty much all-star impact second season. Joel Embiid, after the injuries and everything else, pretty much all-star impact second season. Now, maybe this is a small sample size, but I think we can say bigs, you're getting more immediate production. Wings, you're tending to have to wait a while. There's also a, a, a pattern with that. I think back to 
the idea that Kevin Pelton's talked about before of why why the aging curves are the way they are, and it's because physical impact is always dropping. You know, like a player's rebound rate generally starts dropping from when they come into the league. You know, it's like a car driving off the lot. Yep. But for for players, why a prime is late late twenties usually is because the skill development outpaces the physical deterioration. And it would yeah. make sense that bigs would go through that cycle differently because, by and large, and there are exceptions, Towns, Jokic. They're leveraging phys- They're leveraging the physical more. They're leveraging the physical more. And but, but, there's something, but there's something else going on here because I think there's truth to that. I do. And I know that in the past, Pelton did the analysis and point guards took the longest to develop. But I think that there's something right now to the wing position and its importance in the game where it has the most responsibility that in a in a sport that demands so much versatility where switching is the new style of defense there perhaps is more to master at the wing spot so maybe even if they are bigger and have more physical advantages than the point guards uh there's just more for them now to try to get their heads around and try to figure out that's just my i'm spitballing here i have two i have two theories on that and i think it's i think it's an interesting point and there could be some real truth to it and here are my two thoughts one the importance of physical strength for those players and generally speaking physical strength especially for skinny dudes like brandon ingram takes time you know you can't just add a bunch of bulk because otherwise you're losing a lot of other physical developments you know lateral agility which are exceedingly important in the modern nba and then the other part is that for wings compared to bigs and compared to smalls their role changes the most at the nba level especially and you brought up pascal siakam i think siakam is a great example here he is doing things in the nba that he never did at any other level because we haven't empowered young guys his size and also Siakam picked up the game late from what I recall like we haven't empowered guys that size to do those things even if they were good at it you know that's why LeBron is such a remarkable exception and and Oscar and a few others but guys that are clearly not point guard sized who who have the ball in their hands all the time and go ahead I don't want to interrupt you. I think that you're on track. I'm just wondering, um, do we consider Luca a wing because he's wing size? I mean, he seems to have gotten a handle on things immediately. But then again, he's just the most unprecedented uh, European player in history. So maybe that's that's not the best of examples. I don't think it's the best of examples for that. But also, he's close enough to guard size, and he's had the ball in his hands forever. You know, like he, yeah. he, he it's not like Siakam. Or even like Kawhi, where Kawhi's passing has gotten so much better in the last couple of years because he needs to do it more. And a lot of those those issues and development, it just it takes time, it takes reps, it takes comfortability. And in certain circumstances, those players are getting a benefit of the spacing in the modern NBA that now, in some ways, it is easier to do those things as a bigger player than it ever was because if you're driving into the paint, there aren't four guys there, there might be two. And yeah. I think that's really interesting. And so something you brought up um, that I wanted to I wanted to run people through is I mean there is no all in one metric that I absolutely love, and there aren't any there aren't there are some that I don't have unfettered access to, so that makes it harder. But I want to go through on uh, Jacob Goldstein's PIPM. The I'll use the single year one for now. These are players who are un, 25 and younger who are currently in the top 15, and that isn't to say these are the 15 best players in the league or anything like that. I'm not. I'm not saying his model is perfect or anything like that, but I want to run three people through this because this is, I think it's pretty exciting. Giannis, number one, he's, 20, he's 25. Luca, Carl Anthony Towns, Bam Adebayo, Embiid, Pascal Siakam, Jason Tatum. 
And so, mm. you know, not all of them are necessarily setting the world on fire. And there are a bunch of other guys in, that are that are in other parts of the conversation that could work their way in at, you know, at various different levels. And I mean, Trey isn't included in that partially because of his defensive metrics and all that kind of stuff. But I am really encouraged by the next generation. And remember that one of the players who, in terms of excitement, maybe not immediate production, though who knows, there is Zion Williamson, and Zion Williamson hasn't played a second of NBA basketball yet. That's a good point. Um, I have my concerns about Williamson. Just uh, whenever there are early injuries, uh, that's that, that's troublesome. And you've seen Embiid fight through having some early injuries. Obviously, it's happened before, but you just wonder about a guy coming in and having all that weight on him combined with the uh, there's this thing we're so excited about Zion because it's such an unprecedented combination of attributes. But maybe the human body isn't designed for that. <laughs> maybe the human body isn't designed for a guy flying around with a 40 inch vertical leap and, and carrying all that weight. So um, I, I can't wait to see him play. But I, I'm a little cautious on the idea of we'll slot him in. He's going to be a superstar for the next decade or, or so. I mean, I, I feel a little better about Morant, though. I mean, Morant, man, just so skilled at that size. And that's a guy to be very excited about as well. So there is a replenishing generation. It just doesn't necessarily seem to now be in teams that a lot of people are watching. And, hey, Lee can't really do anything about that. The NBA has a curious setup where they have more small markets than other sports they have more small markets than baseball does for instance um but that's just that's just something you you, you ride with it and you just hope that one of these guys catches enough fire that he catches the nation's attention regardless zion is a, a an interesting one for me because i think back to the first time i saw him play was when he was 16 years old in person 16 years old at adidas nations in long beach and i was blown away by his physical tools. You know, he was, he reminded me physically when I saw him in person of Draymond Green because he's kind of pudgy and this, mm. is, this is like more like out of shape Draymond. And, and remember, I didn't get like a weight measurement or anything like that. And then I saw him jump and I just went, oh, it's impossible. And so in those days, I freaked out. You know, I, I really did freak out about how is this going to work? How can somebody with that much weight who jumps this hard, how can his knees survive that? That's not what human beings should do. And the example that is sticking in my brain now is cross sports Tim Linscombe. Tim Linscombe, mm-hmm. somebody who I was familiar with because he was at Washington when I was at UCLA. And the most common refrain with Linscombe was he can't he can't do this, his motion, he's so small, all these kind of things. And what and then he's trucking along, you know, wins an MVP or sorry, wins Cy Young twenty four and twenty five, is still really good through 27 and then it becomes right and so i think that's the other part of this that's a little bit hard for uh, it's making it hard emotionally for me to fully invest in zion long term is Mm. the idea of linscombe that maybe he defies all of all of the kind of the warning signs for even let's say five to ten years and that's awesome you know like if he can do if he can do it that long we should be thankful that that somebody with his i mean he's playing at a heavier weight than lebron has ever played at and he could win a dunk contest as soon as he comes back like that is exceedingly unusual but there is a little bit of that and and so yeah i am a little bit concerned about zion but then also you just watch him play and you go however long we have it i'm going to yeah. be thrilled and- oh if he is who if he is who he is right if he is if he comes back um, unhindered by injury, I mean, he's he's going to be he's going to be a productive player. I mean, he's he's damn good. 
Um, no, oh, so, no question about that. Yeah. So I want to get into a couple of the things you brought up in terms of teams and situations in the league. And there, are, I think there are two things to unpack, both of which go back to the early days of Real Jam Radio, because you and I have been talking about it for as long as we've known each other, which is probably what, like six, seven, seven years now. I don't even know how long it is. It might, it might be more than that, Danny. It, it might, might be. be more. It might, when did you oh start? When God. did you start covering the Warriors? Wait, wait a second, dude. I think we've known each other for a decade. <laughs> when did you start? When did you start covering games? I think I started going to games around 2010. Okay, so, so yeah, about a decade. I started in 09. So yeah, yeah, we're we're wow. getting there. Man. Wow, we're getting we're, there. we're so as we talked about before we started recording, we're old. Yeah. But uh, but so so there are kind of a couple things to unpack with the with what you were saying before about the league, and and they're worth discussing especially in light of, as you talked about with Ja and a few of the other guys, how this could shake out. And so the first thing is the market question. And the NBA does have, they have a lot of resources, teams, let's say, in markets that are not great at supporting NBA basketball. And that's not to yeah. say the fans are bad, but when you think about this from a BRI perspective, so yeah. national TV ratings, local TV yeah, ratings, I, I, I'm going to posit attendance. that it's, I'm going to posit, crazily enough, it's easier to make money when your product is in front of more people. That's my yeah. crazy, just, you know, hey, take, take it for what it's worth. Yeah, and, and so that is an, an important consideration here, and that is something the NBA can do something about, but not immediately. You know, they here, here, Here's a stat for you, Danny. Um, more people, I mean, more households in the Bay Area watched the Warriors win their 73rd game in that season, then there are households in the Memphis media market. So that's one stat for you, just to give a sense of, just a sense of scale. Right, and another, I mean, the most extreme example, and one that's bothered me and both of us since it happened, is the NBA making the decision because of apparently like luxury suites in an old arena to move a team from Seattle to Oklahoma City. And not remotely to denigrate the Oklahoma City fans. They're fabulous. Uh, I've, I've, changed, I've changed my mind on that, Danny. I love Mahogany Steakhouse. I love how... <laughs> I love how so, so your your your, your BRI focus goes away yeah. the second the second the oh, place yeah. has amenities that you enjoy. I love uh, what is it Kitchen three two four two three four. I always mix up the numbers, but I love that brunch spot. Uh, the media seating is courtside. I mean, look, I hey after a while, and they they that trade they made that Paul George trade. What a trade by Presti! Uh, you know, you did okay, Oklahoma City. You win. You win this one. <laughs> <laughs> you do, you are remembering that there could be that we're comparing this to Seattle for food and for amenities and all that kind of stuff, right? What's not? It's I, not. I, I I understand that. And uh, look, look, look. I I was very sad in preseason when the Warriors had a game in Vancouver, and the writers who had been there in the 1990s told me that there used to be a road swing where you would often go Vancouver, Seattle, Portland, maybe even take the train between those cities. I can't remember how it even goes, and. Oh, my. Just how idyllic does that sound? How wonderful does that sound? But you got to move on. You got to just accept reality for what it is. And there's no basketball team in Seattle. And hopefully there will be one in the future. And in the meantime, whenever I'm in Oklahoma City, after I take three flights in, because it's not exactly a major hub of travel, uh, I'm going to enjoy a nice steak, rare, with some horseradish sauce. Another part of that dynamic is that having fewer teams in the Pacific time zone has some challenges for the NBA too, and it would that would be another benefit of just having more teams out there and population bases and all that. Okay, so that's one one point. The second 
and this is something that that you've talked about a little bit recently and we've talked about forever almost for a decade apparently is how the NBA chooses to market and develop the public consciousness of their young stars and so the the one that crystallized this for me was somebody we're both familiar with Kevin Durant where the league basically didn't put the Thunder on TV until they were already good. And they're trying to adjust that a little bit with Zion. I'm a, I'm afraid that him being hurt might burn that a little bit because, mm. I mean, the, the, the Pelicans are just less watchable. I believe they have a national TV game on Friday night. As we're, oh, no, it was last night. Yeah. They, play, they played the Suns. And yeah, I watched. I actually watched that at Nate's house with Nate, um, and we uh, we were laughing about how bad a game it was. And then we got drawn into it. Then we kind of got sucked into that one. Yeah, that's what happens when basketball <laughs> lifers have, and there's only two games on in a given night. And I think that, and that one didn't even have Scal playing in it. But the, I mean, but the idea behind it, from my perspective, is you have a certain amount of wattage. You know, a, a band, bandwidth is probably a better analogy. And I think that the league needs to devote a portion of that to identifying young stars and putting them in a real chance for for people to connect. I mean, you could think about how the NCAA tournament does this for college players. And while I don't think the pros should use college basketball as a model for a lot of different things, one element of it that they do is that unless it's certain networks because of how everything's been broken out, generally speaking, if you want to see a talented young player playing in college, you can do that without league pass or some sort of other like niche yeah. product. Yes, that's a great point. Well, the NBA also put itself at a strategic disadvantage, and I wonder if money motivates everything. Sometimes that's the assumption. that It's all about money, 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 money is why decisions are made. I think human beings are capable of having multiple motivations, and I really wonder – if the NBA strategy vis-a-vis college basketball speaks to the attachments many owners have to their alma maters and their affection for college basketball and for their colleges, I, I, I have to wonder because the way that the NBA handles their business in deference up until this point to the college game makes no business sense. None. None at all. It's completely crazy. We've gotten used to it, but it's absolutely insane. It's this idea of, well, um, the college game, it, it promotes our stars, and then uh, they're more famous when they enter the pro game. Dude, nobody cares. Nobody cares that Kemba Walker uh, had this fine college career when he goes to Charlotte, right? That's not anything that really helped sell many tickets. It didn't help at all. And what the NBA has given away is that sense of new, that sense of there's this building phenomenon. Nobody's seen it before. There are rumors and whispers. I mean, just remember that excitement, that excitement back in the day for LeBron's first season. You saw him on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the chosen one. You didn't know quite what what you were seeing. You wanted to see it for the first time. Uh, The NBA has ceded that to the college game with Zion. You know, I'm excited to see Zion Williamson play at the pro level. I legitimately am. I'd be stupid not to be, but it won't be the same as those first few games I was checking out when he was on Duke. And they've given that away. Eventually, it seems that they are going to get rid of the one and done rule. And I think that's wise. But I I, I just cite it to say that their business model makes no sense. People say that college basketball is a free farm system. Uh, Dan Lebitard, I love Lebitard, but he, he said that repeatedly, that they had this free farm system. I don't think a free farm system often gets better ratings than what you are getting while its games are on during your games. I don't think that's something that really happens. I don't think that's a 
farm system at that point. What it is is a competing business, and in the business world, you usually try to kill it. And if the NBA was operating according to just cold, hard, capitalistic pragmatism, they'd be trying to completely deprive the college game of, of talent and give these guys some sort of psalm that knocks them out of the whole uh, NCAA free amateurism game. Um, and I think that you're seeing some of that coming from the Australian side and just look at the success that the NBL has had this season and look at how much more popularity they are getting because they decided to pay these potential lottery picks a little bit of money and rant. It's even more extreme than you said, because there is growing evidence or even just evidence that college is worse at developing NBA players than the oh. NBA is. So it's a different, it's not, a different game. It's so, a different sport. So not only are you giving talent to a competitor, you're giving talent to a competitor that will eventually be your talent and you're allowing them to be worse for it. And that is completely insane. And I mean, the NBA now throws so many resources, justifiably so, into development and to seed a year of a young player's progression to college is crazy. Think about it just from a nutrition standpoint. The, The difference between... Even the really good collegiate programs and an MBA strength conditioning and nutrition program. Getting those 18, 19-year-olds in, developing healthy habits that early. And also remember that college is, to a certain extent, a constraint, I would assume, on the MBA or whatever entity that could be, USA Basketball, whatever we're talking about, reaching some of those like more broad scoping things into like the high school ranks. And yeah, there you can get into that you don't want to get agents or whatever all some of these things in high school but if the like if there would be a way of promoting some of those healthier habits or some of the stuff i went to team usa camp in colorado springs recently getting some of the best practices in at certain programs or whatever they're going to do those sorts of things could be hugely beneficial and i think college is uh it's a it's a it's a factor that they're considering in all of these things, and it absolutely should not be in a positive sense. Maybe it is in a negative sense, as you said, the idea of killing it. Yeah, and I haven't fully researched um, the various ties that a lot of these owners have uh, to the college programs, but I, I don't think that I would have to look very hard to see it. Wealthy people, especially wealthy men, tend to have a lot of affection for their universities. And a lot of that pride is manifested in uh, how the sports programs do. I mean, you, you, you see that you see that a lot, whether it's uh, T. Boone Pickens, RIP, uh, basically bankrolling the, the Oklahoma State program for football. Uh, so I do think that that sentimental consideration has ultimately impacted the NBA's business model in a way that has been accepted because we've just become so used to it. But it's rather it's just rather crazy. It doesn't make any sort of economic sense, in my opinion, for the arrangement to continue as it does. And and I think soon enough, soon enough, uh, I, I don't think it it, it will anymore uh, because they're just they're just given they're just given away they're given away value. It's crazy. You talked about alma maters, and I think another prominent example of that, and one that would not be changed, uh, maybe it would be a little bit by the one-and-done rule. Remember that in the 2018 draft, the Phoenix Suns got the number one overall pick, had an opportunity to draft Luka Doncic, and instead took a player from the owner's alma mater. Yeah. That's, I mean, and, and Aiton's a, a, a tantalizing physical God, talent. God help, kind of God help the Warriors if... Uh some sort of Stanford player manages to get to the fringe of the first round, right? Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's those, those, 
those attachments are, are quite meaningful, quite meaningful. And that would appear to be a mistake of a pick. I don't even think we could say appear to be. I think it's just a mistake of a pick that was based on that sentiment. So if it was just about the economic considerations, you don't make that pick. Uh, but there are other considerations, apparently. Plenty more to talk about with Ethan Sherwood-Strauss, but first a message from betonline.ag. Late November is a great time in sports, and that makes it a fantastic time to check out betonline.ag. Big week in the NFL. Packers at 49ers for me. Cowboys at Patriots. Seahawks, Eagles, Ravens, Rams. For a lot of people, college football. Penn State, Ohio State is a big game. You can see my Bruins get crushed probably by USC as well. And of course, huge matchups in the NBA. Hopefully we get the Kyrie Irving return matchup coming up early next week and a bunch of other games. Utah goes on a big road trip. And the way to check it out, betonline.ag. Use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Whether it's a game that you are going to be watching anyway, or you think you know what's going on and you want to make a wager on the spread, money line, whatever makes you happy. They also have awesome in-game betting, something I've talked about on this podcast before. So whatever you're into, check out betonline.ag and use that podcast one promo code for a 50% sign-up bonus. Bet online.ag your online sportsbook experts let's talk a little bit about load management you wrote a really good piece on this for the athletic a little while back and one of the things that I, I really liked about how you handled it was the idea of talking to people in different phases of the NBA game and both their ideal solutions and a more practical one because one of the challenging elements of this is while a lot of us can identify let's call it a problem even though I do agree with some of the some of the people that you got that you got quoted that you quoted that said it's not as much of a problem as as many think it's more of a perception thing but perception can be an actual problem but but let's but but the idea is kind of I think what you were trying to get at is like everybody has their different priorities everybody has their different concepts and so while it is a I don't think there's a lot of argument about certain parts of this. Like, for example, let's get this out of the way. Assuming that there's something specific with Kawhi Leonard, which it certainly appears that there is, the Clippers are making the right decision for the LA Clippers and Kawhi Leonard to aggressively load manage him in the regular season. Yeah, we can. I, I think honestly, not only can the two of us as writers who aren't we, we are in not teams. judging their handling of Kawhi Leonard is is what we are establishing. We are not saying that that's bad. In fact, I think we would even say it is good. I would is, is unequivocally. I would yes. So then, um, yeah, it's, okay, so then the question becomes, well, where do you go from there? And it it gets hard for a bunch of different reasons, some of which are financial, because you have you have BRI that is driving a lot of this. I mean, basketball-related income is huge in terms of ownership's profit margins, but also for the players, they get about half of it. So any reduction in the pie, whether that is reduction because of TV ratings or reduction because of you're reducing number of games a season, any number of other things becomes a challenge. And so it's, it is a really thorny issue. And I think that it's good to get people of different parts of it on the, are on the record, you know, maybe not attaching their names to it to kind of get a sense of where this is. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to do that. I wanted to see what the different levels thought about it. And one of the reasons why I asked is because I don't come to it, hopefully with a lot of arrogance. I, I think it's a problem. 
I'm just not so arrogant as to think I have a practical solution to it. Maybe I have a solution to it if I were dictator of the league, but nobody actually has such power. Whoever runs the league or whoever is the commissioner has to get the majority of owners to agree on the solution, and that's like herding cats. So that puts certain constraints on you. I know what I would favor. I know what I would want to do. I would want to turn the whole sport into what I see in the NBL in Australia and have these once a week. I mean, they have it's so awesome. They almost have a, a game day on the weekends where it's just that's the day that they, they have the basketball games and it's raucous and you just see such a level of energy on defense that you only really see in the playoffs uh, in the NBA. So I, I would favor that kind of system, uh, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon because you've got the inertia, you've got the different agreements, you've got the owners who don't want to risk their money and just trust that playing fewer games are result in more of it. Um, it seems really difficult to do. So it's not easy. It's not. It's difficult, but it is a problem. It is. And I, I, I said in the article, uh, Joy Taylor, who's on Colin Coward's show, was saying that uh, it's not a problem. They just, you know, it's not any different than the past. They just created a new name for it or, or whatnot, or they just created a name for it. And I would say that she is right, but she is wrong because that's true. That's true. This thing has existed before and there just wasn't a name for it. But the problem is once you give a name to something, it has a certain cultural power. Uh, it's the superior wharf uh, hypothesis that once you name a concept, you allow people to conceptualize it and remember it and see it. I think that we've all had that in a way where if somebody introduces you to a word, then you start seeing the word everywhere. And the NBA has a branding problem when it comes to load management, that goofy term. Now people know it and they say it and it contributes to a certain impression of the league. And look, I wouldn't be chicken little yelling at the sky on these matters if the ratings were going up, but the ratings aren't going up. They're actually tanking. So I would say that this is something that the NBA needs to figure out and figure out quickly. And to, to kind of your main point there, it, there is an important distinction between reality and perception because if the perception becomes pervasive enough to actually affect behavior en masse, then it matters. And really, I think the line for and, – and one that I'm going to be really interested is in is in-person attendance um, and, you know, let's call it, let's call it in, like gate revenue, all that kind of stuff. Because I, I believe that there is a justifiable reluctance on I, – and I don't have to pay for games. I, I acknowledge that, and so that creates yeah. a distance for we, me. We are, we are so cut out of that loop. I mean how often – I know it happens to me a lot. I'm guessing it happens to you where somebody asks you uh, if you can get them tickets or if there's any deal on tickets. And we are, we are just in this sort of uh, loop that doesn't even interface with any of that. Right, and be, but beyond that, the other loop that I'm in and, and I think a lot of us are – is people who are interested in going to a specific game asking us, do you think player X is going to play? And yeah. I think that questioning is a lot more prevalent now. And once you get people in that mindset, then that affects their confidence in buying tickets, whether that is through you know a team site and that that really is where they see it because if it's on the secondary market then it takes a, a longer i can speak to this a lot as somebody who used to work in that business you know it takes a lot longer for that to affect a team because if, mm -hmm. if you know if the secondary market is weak then it's going to take take a couple years for brokers to stop buying tickets that sort of thing but it, it could be a huge thing down the road eventually if, if if it comes to pass but what i'm getting at is the idea that once people have less confidence that 
player X is going to play in game Y, let's say they don't, they won't know more than a day in advance. That creates real problems for the league. Even if that player ends up playing, it creates real problems for the league. And so that is really where I think the rubber meets the road here. And it is completely correct. There have been people, because I'm pretty vocal about what I want here. There have been people who've said there will still be load management. There will still be strategic rest, even if you got exactly what you wanted. And so that for me is everyone playing everyone twice, though I would probably expand the, I would, without decreasing the length of the season. So, you know, so what I'm saying is you play 58 games in the same length of time we have right now, that would eliminate back-to-backs. It would eliminate a lot of the other stuff. And they're they're right. You know, there would still be strategic resting, but there would be a lot less of it. And I agree. I agree with that. I think that to me, they might be correct, but I just think that's that's an anti-reform impulse. To me, that's yeah. that's the, it's the parallel of the idea of the those who say, oh, well, you shouldn't mandate seatbelts because people will still die in car accidents. And the answer is, yeah, yeah they still will, but it will happen a lot less. And that's good. Yes. And, yes, and there, there is agree. sometimes and sometimes it's done disingenuously. Sometimes it's done or pro- it's or, done, or it's done about, appropriately that they, or how or how about this? I mean, this is never brought up, but. We ran a natural experiment. It was an accidental experiment, but it was a natural experiment where because of the lockout, a bunch of games were chopped off the NBA schedule. We had a 66-game season. That was, and you would have thought otherwise, because there were articles about how maybe this had been a black eye for the league. Maybe The, the, it would play, the quality of basketball was significantly worse. <laughs> the quality of basketball was significantly worse. All this bad press going into it. Highest TV ratings of the post-Jordan era by far that season. Highest by far for the regular season. So that's a natural experiment that might tell you this is oversaturated and the public isn't actually demanding more of this. Indeed, they are demanding less of it. I mean, look, small sample size. I get it. You can come up with whatever considerations you want for why it happened. But that's just what happened. They rolled out 66 games. A lot more people watched. So just saying. And it's worth noting, I mean, I like to think about this as a CBA expert in terms of the two sides that negotiate the collective bargaining agreement. So for players, the argument for a shorter season is is in some ways harder because the drop in revenue directly affects them. You know, let's say players get half the pie, they just get less. But on the owner's side, that's the part that to me is really compelling because they, you know, yes, if you want to think about it in terms of revenue, sure, they're losing revenue in all likelihood. I think the loss in revenue is actually significantly less than people think. I think there is this over, from from the limited amount that I know, there is this over indulgence in how much money teams make game by game as profit. You know, that idea, the idea that, oh, well, if you have 10 fewer home games, you're losing a ton of money. I think that's a very real, a, a very overstated concern. However, worth remembering on the owner's side that, yes, it is true that their revenue side is going down. Their cost side is going down, too. Yes. And some of that is the players. Absolutely. I mean, players get about well, half it, the revenue. It, it's, it's thought of wrong because it's always talked about owners giving up money. What they're really doing is increasing risk. That's what they're doing. Exactly. They're increasing risk. But also remember, there are certain jobs related to an NBA team where you're decreasing the revenue doesn't affect how much you're paying them. You know, yeah. like, for example, I don't think general managers are going to make less money, strength and conditioning coaches, all that. But the people who they have to pay who, like, work in the arena, no. The, you can generally, if they're working fewer days, you can pay them less money. 
And so the reduction in revenue is not as, as severe a reduction in profit. So for me, that is a – but there is a risk element of this. You talked about the risk element also. I'm assuming you're meaning volatility because if yeah. you're games, there's also a risk element because we don't know exactly – You know, as much as economists can model and everything else, we don't know exactly how this is going to affect the per-game stuff until it actually happens. So there is this uncertainty idea that, well, if you're happy with how things are and there's a change – there is a material chance that that change makes things worse, so you do that. And, and so, so then you don't want to do it. It's risk aversion. And I think that the, the owners are, in this circumstance, being too risk averse, more so than the mm-hmm. players are, because the players actually have their, their, the effects of this financially for them, especially outside of the stars, are, you know, they could be fairly prominent because they're, you know, there presumably will be less revenue. Sorry, I just I just sneezed off mic right right there. Um, I'm just looking at the the numbers, and I'm saying roughly because I don't have the final reading on the average rating last season, but I can project it. It was it was a down year. Um, it would appear that the average regular season rating uh, in the lockout shortened season versus last season, the lockout shortened season, it was on average two million more viewers. Two million. That's crazy. Well, That's and, crazy. And, and let's think about it from the in-person game perspective. So the proportion of it, too... It's three million something for last year on average. So it's mm-hmm. not like that's like a small slice of the overall one. I mean, we're talking about I mean, we're talking about a huge difference between what the ratings were, what the ratings were in the lockout season versus right now. And, and the other point that I want to make is from a marketing perspective, think about for in person and, and even for TV ratings, but especially in person, the power of the argument to say for any game on the slate, this is your only chance to see X. So oh, yeah. it, every single home game is the only chance that that team's season ticket holders, that team's fans get to see Giannis, get to see LeBron, get to see Zion, you know, who, whether it's a young guy that you like experience the phenomenon in person. Basically what Australia is going through right now with LaMelo Ball. <laughs> exactly. And so there is an intense value to that. My belief is that the in-person per game, like the, in, the per game profit or even loss, well, just basically where that will go will actually improve for owners. And so, but yeah, the 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 local TV ratings would take a hit. Like, well, not local TV ratings, sorry, local TV payments because there'd be fewer games. And then the other real interesting part of this is the NBA could still fulfill their national TV contract, no problem. Like there is no yeah. credible argument that the NBA would be unable to fill their national TV requirement if they played 58 games per team per season. It would be easy to do, and they would be able to facilitate certain parts of this. Like one thing that came up in your piece, and I agree with this, even though I think some of it is a little bit problematic, is that there shouldn't be, you know, like, for example, the most extreme was this recent Kawhi one, where he was in a back-to-back, both of which were on national television. That shouldn't yeah. happen. Like, yeah. for, and especially like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, for me, it's a little bit unsettling because there is a selection difference between national TV games and non-national games. So if you make sure that star players are on national games, there is a little bit of a competitive balance issue here. But from a revenue maximization, making your broadcast partners happy and all that stuff, I totally get it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pragmatist in that sense. I understand the limitations. And so, yes, that is something the NBA should start doing immediately is not having back-to-back national games and, you know, leaning as best they can on teams to say, if a player is going to sit in a back-to-back, have it be the non-national game because that contract is exceedingly important to us. I think there's a lot of, a lot of legitimacy to that. 
And then the other part of it is getting rid of them entirely, then it gets even easier because then you don't have to do all that schedule management. It's already done because there are no back-to-backs. Let's, let's, um, I agree with all that. Um, I, I want to, maybe take on some of the arguments against what we're saying uh because uh, there are reasonable arguments against what Absolutely. we're saying i don't want to you know we're not in our ivory towers from on high uh just dictating completely sure we're correct although we suspect we're correct otherwise we wouldn't talk about it but a lot of people say one of two things one of two things i think we can talk about both the first is that you're not talking about streaming numbers you're talking about this antiquated tv rating like it's back in the day and you gotta go up to the television and turn the dial to get the channels it's a brand new world out there everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket um and you're not you're not talking about that that's you're not talking about it that's it's the new world we're in so that's one and the second argument that's made is because of this new world we're in the apple tv era people have so much more at their disposal this is just how it's going for sports. People want to watch Stranger Things. They don't necessarily want to watch uh, Grizzlies Hawks. And you're not being fair because what can the NBA do about that? It's not the NBA's fault that there are so many more entertainment options than there were in the 1990s. So I think to the first argument, um, the first argument that's being made there, I would say, and I have more of a decisive rebuttal to that one than to the second one. But the first argument, I would say this, um, it's not... It, it, it's just not seemingly at the level that people might think it is on basketball Twitter. The rare streaming numbers that I see are not exactly impressive. Uh, the NBA, I begged them to give me some information to tell me, hey, if you've got some boffo streaming numbers, I want to hear about it because I'm about to write about your ratings problems and I want to be fair. So speak now, forever hold your peace. Tell me what are these amazing streaming numbers. They really couldn't provide it to me and then the ones that were available, one example, for instance, it's a positive story for the NBA in many ways that the Raptors were so popular when they won the championship last season. Uh, there were, I believe, off the top of my head, over 15 million Canadians who tuned in on TSN to see that happen, that Game 6 victory. And on streaming, that number was around 150,000. So that gives you a sense of the difference in the scale we're talking about. It is still vastly preferred by sports consumers to gather around and watch the television and not watch on your phone or watch via the streaming service. Um, maybe that will be different in the future, but I don't think that's the story of the league right now. I'm Occam's razor with it. I don't see declining ratings and say to myself, this is just happening because people are watching it all on their phones. No, I think it just represents less interest. It also happens to correspond to what I see in real life outside of Twitter, that people aren't as into the NBA as they were in the recent past. Now, the second one... Well, I, let me talk briefly about the yeah. first one, because yeah. the other the other component of this that is important to acknowledge is that when we're talking, as we have for portions of this in terms of BRI and other things, if it's harder to monetize streaming than TV... Then, what does it matter? Then, it's then a tree, it, tree falling in the forest. If you yeah, can't monetize, it didn't fall. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I mean, from the NBA's perspective, I do kind of get that. Now, there is there is a counter to that of the NBA could be better at monetizing it. And I mean, I, we could do an entire podcast on League Pass as a product and everything else. And I don't really feel like doing that right now. But you can get into that. I'll instead let you talk about the second thing. Yeah, the second thing is a pretty good argument. And I think there's truth to it. Um, it just seems to be impacting the sports differently. 
So the argument is basically that in this new streaming world, people have better entertainment options. So many people have cut the cord, and this is killing sports ratings everywhere. The thing is, it's not killing sports ratings everywhere. It seems to be killing the sports or hurting the sports that aren't scarce, that have games that fill out a schedule, but these games are not necessarily events. So what you are seeing is declining ratings for the NHL, declining ratings for the MLB, declining ratings for the NBA. Um, I agree. I, I Again, this is a difficult issue to solve. Uh, it just seems that if you look at the lesson of this, you would then look to the NFL and you would look to college football. They are doing fine. They have as much, if not more, viewership than they had back in the day in the recent past, in the 1990s, whatever you want to call it. I mean, more viewership because they have the same share and the country has way more people. Uh, The NBA has lost share and has fewer people watching than back in the 90s when more people lived in the United States. So that's the argument I would make. I, I would say that the NBA is suffering comparable losses to the other sports that have a ton of games, but that doesn't mean that all sports are going to be impacted by it. To me, I think the lesson is you need to make your games an event. You need fewer games. You need them on a schedule. If you do that, I know it's really hard. I am a pragmatist. I, I don't say, Adam Silver, you're an idiot. How have you not gotten this done? Uh, but I would say that those are where the trend lines are going. That's where the wind is blowing. And in a perfect world, uh, a farsighted world, it's what they would be trying to do. And I wouldn't necessarily go as far as, as some have said, and I, and I can see the merit behind it. You've talked about the idea of having games on specific days of the week. What I would do is load specific days and then have fewer games on the other ones because then it makes it easier to fulfill a national TV contract. So kind of, you know, I don't know exactly what the structure would be, but you know, most teams play, let's say it's Saturday or Sunday, whichever one of those, and then Tuesday, Thursday, or something like that, you know, three games a week. And but then you have, you know, a sprinkling of games Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you like those could be opportunities to showcase young players or do a lot do some other things. But like that structure I think could work really well. What do you think of and to name drop a bit, I asked David Stern about this, and I won't tell you the response because maybe maybe I want to put that in an article. Maybe I want to tease that. But what do you think of the idea of if you said, hey, I've got to increase interest in the regular season and I can't cut games. Um, the home team in a playoff series now gets five games at home instead of four to ramp up that advantage and prevent teams from taking it lightly um, during the regular season. Is that an idea that has some potential or is that too radical and has too many downsides? I think it has too many downsides. It is definitely, you know, the way that I think about this is all ideas are good ideas to have because Mm -hmm. it creates incentive. I would be more supportive of the idea that the home, the higher seed can pick their opponent, which is another competitive benefit. It doesn't change the home road balance, especially five, two would be a little bit extreme, but I like it. I, I, I mean, that's sort of, and also, I mean, that gets into all of the crazy stuff in terms of drama that people love of, Oh, can you imagine the fodder? Not only just for people like us, but for casual fans of, Oh my God, who are they going to pick? And I think that would foster interest in the end of the regular season too, because then these fans of, of teams or just of the league are going to watch those bottom, let's say the bottom four teams in the East and say, Oh, who should, who should the bucks pick? I think people would go crazy for that. I, 
I love it. Um, I think it's better than the five of seven, and it would add to the drama, and it's one of those, why, why not? And if we will carp about the NBA, I do not understand the reforms. I mean, look, they're they're reform-minded. I'm, they're not they're not anti-reform. I just don't understand a lot of the reforms they implement. I was not sitting around and going, oh, my God, I want a coach's challenge. That is what I want. That's what I want completely well, it, it, up it the also of the game. it also runs directly against the idea that the NBA has done some good reforms going towards consist making the time of game shorter and a little bit more consistent which is good for TV purposes and it's good yep. for for in-person crowds oh we're going to add in something else that it will theoretically help get calls right but it also takes a bunch of time and the, the craziest one is okay so the fast break foul. Oh, ah, yeah, clear yeah. path. Your your yeah, old yeah. your old buddy. It's it, I mean it's the it's the best criticism that the How NBA has not incorporated. How is this not fixed? How is this not fixed? What are we doing? This is what year are we on? This is crazy. This is completely insane. The whole purpose of this is that it was making the game boring when guys would grab a dude who was going to have a dunk. So you wanted to have something that would stop it from happening, but then they grind the game to a halt for a lengthy replay review when every ref knows when somebody's getting grabbed to prevent a dunk. They can just make that call subjectively. That's fine. Just do that. Well, and what they're, are, what they're, are we doing? But they're also it's it's they're <laughs> two different other components that drive me completely insane with it so one is the ideal situation is to not have those fouls come in in the first place and yes this so the way you do that is you make it so that those fouls however we want to define it it's two shots in the ball one shot i think one shot in the ball would probably be enough and then they're not going to happen anymore you know like if you change it so that the team basically gets an automatic point and they still get the ball, players aren't going to do those fouls anymore. It's that, for now, having them in the ha- having forcing a half-court possession versus a dunk is an easy choice. Once you make it I a just, harder choice, it doesn't happen. So that's I one just, I, I, I think I'm, I'm ranting about it because when I saw it the first time, I thought, oh, they're going to fix this. This is going to get fixed. But because nobody's clamoring for it. There's no... Look, I'm anti-replay review. I'm staunchly anti-replay review. But there are people who like replay review and will argue that one. And I understand it. I understand the perspective. Where, who, who, who demand? What, what, I, why, why is this happening? Yeah, that that's a big one. And then, and then the other part of it that's so shocking to me is that they haven't instituted a time limit on replay reviews. Yes, getting the call right is getting the call right is important. But if you can't figure it out in thirty seconds. Then do you just I'm, I'm, I'm anti the whole thing. I, I understand that there are counter arguments. I, I reserve my angry yelly rants for the the uh, the, to- clear the, path the, foul, the, the clear yeah, path foul. The clear path foul review. Fair. But but replay review, I'm staunchly against it. I truly hate it, but I understand that I am not everybody and other people disagree and, uh, and they want it. They want to get the call right. I think there are more downsides than upsides to the whole thing. I don't like grinding the game to a halt. As, uh, hey, refs sometimes get calls wrong. That's part of life. It's human error. As a superstar small forward once said to me, grow up. I think we could all live. We could all live with the mistakes. In the 1990s, refs got calls wrong. We complained about it. We got mad. And guess what? Everybody survived it was okay. I don't think that we need to stop the game to retroactively referee it. Perfect can be the enemy of good. It absolutely can be. One other quick note on that before we move on is I would like to see a reform in terms of just how they say who the ball is out on. The NBA has the rule that basically whichever 
thing touched it last, that's who it's out on. When I was trained as a referee in soccer, the idea was basically who is the reason the ball went out of bounds as opposed to yes. who did it technically oh, touch this last. This is another perfect enemy of good thing that's exactly, happened. Exactly, because the, where the it, NBA's current rule leads to these terrible video reviews uh, because they have to see, oh, did it the, touch a, a, a little cell on their finger? Ro- this is a thing that nobody talks about, but ironically, refs are better at calling the spirit of the rule in the moment than they are when they are right, just like uh, clear path you, yeah. clear path is so much easier to call as an intent call than an actual factual like is this yeah. guy two steps further it's it's a way easier call and it gets to what you want yeah it's not gonna be perfect every yeah, single time just, and they're gonna be mistakes but that is but the mistakes that you get in that you know it's the, the idea is like you know false positives false negatives you can get in that idea of like what is what is the worst case scenario and for me the worst case scenario is what we currently have which are these replay reviews that don't really mean much yeah the, and and again they don't call it according to the spirit and then you've got these weird things where you can retroactively ref one way but not the other way so if a guy hits another guy's hand and the ball goes out then you've changed the call because it turns out that his hand touched the ball yeah, but last but you can't but review was, the foul it's it's but completely yeah, yeah. insane. Yeah, yeah. This is complete, in my opinion, madness driven by this uh, impulse to make everything neat and tidy. And they are not prioritizing entertainment. I mean, entertainment is the whole reason this thing exists. And yes, there should be some integrity. Yes, the ref should try to get the call right in the moment. They should be hired according to their ability to do so. But in the context right now, and I, I, I bang on this drum, I do it in part because I care and also because those are the results. If if the league was doing great, if it was thriving, if ratings were surging, I would not be saying any of this or at least saying it so loud. But it's going the other way, so I think it's time to analyze everything. Everything's on the table. I think the main issue, the main issue, um, and everybody has their theories, the main issue is just the scarcity issue. But all this stuff is on the table. It's up for review, replay review even, for us to see if it's working. I would still be complaining anyway. And yeah, almost, me too. Almost that's as, a lie. Almost as I'm, I'm so, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a total liar. That, that, that's, I, I just, the way, yeah. that's the way it works. Uh, let's talk briefly about the draft. I, I really liked an exercise that you did for a recent piece. I think this is just the nature of covering the Warriors this year. You have to look for different angles, something that you and I are familiar with going back to the early part of this decade, because time is a flat circle, of looking at it from the draft perspective. And something I liked that you did was looking at, you know, looking at these players potentially as fits for Golden State specifically because they're in such an unusual circumstance, but also using the the overriding situation that if a player is really good, it's still going to work. Yeah, yeah, um, it's 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 difficult. They are on an they are in an unusual timeline, um, and I think they favor BPA. I do. I think they do, and that's just from some conversations. Um, now I don't know at this juncture who they think that guy is. But as I said earlier, and as I wrote in the article, um, what's tricky for them is that I think they need a wing, but if they draft a wing, by the time that wing develops, all these other players will be out of their primes. So I think you can start doing some deduction um, about what they need to do. And that's what I outlined in, in this article, that knowing that, then you can maybe figure out how some of the other stuff might shake out. Um, do you have any way, by the way, Danny, do you have any draft picks you like already in this early going or guys who've caught your eye or anybody where you would think, oh, I could see him on the Warriors? Not yet. I, I haven't really watched much college. I So this is a, a shift that happened for me a couple of years ago where I realized 
watching sporadic college basketball actually made me a worse analyst because huh. of sample bias. Because I would watch a, a single game of a player and it would affect my analysis. And so I actually watch a lot less college basketball in season now. But what I've done is I've shifted and do a lot more film when I do film. So, for example, Edwards, I'm going to, instead of watching, you know, like uh, it's a random Tuesday night and he's playing on ESPN, instead of watching that game, I will watch, I'll try to watch an extra half hour to an hour of his assorted clips once the season ends. And what I think what, that's it. That's a good process. Yeah, I, think I mean, it, but it is less fun right now. I'd be it, it would be fun to invest, and I did break that own rule with Zion last year because I couldn't help myself because yeah. he was he was so transfixing. And with Luca, I would watch sometimes with Synergy or whatever. I would watch his his games, either the Slovenia stuff or the well, I mean, also international competitions of their own rules because they're. I, sometimes we do them for Duck Don, and sometimes I just want to watch. But I, I, um, I enjoy it. I like trying to see what's coming next. Uh, right. Like, what, and, and, what, what do you? What would you do? Okay, so this is a tough question, and it's one that the commenters are asking me after I wrote this article. Uh, what would you do if you were the Warriors? I mean, what's what? What is the the two tiered plan? I mean, obviously, there's one plan where you're hoping to pull off, as I have termed it, the hostile makeover. Uh, of pre-agency, right, where you make over the disgruntled superstars team with assets and youth and you get the disgruntled superstar uh, because they want to go to your team, as we have seen with Anthony Davis and the Lakers. Um, You know, if you get that with Giannis, you know, that's that is plan A. But, you know, what's 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 plan B? what, What do you think? What do you think they should be doing? I can I can float a a few different ideas. Yeah. So in in terms of the the theory of it, to me, priority one would be if you can get that prime or near prime star with the assets they have. And I think the Warriors, other than this pick, their asset base is actually pretty weak. They don't. Jacob Evans hasn't set the world on fire. A lot of their other guys. Uh, I don't know if the asset base is weak. We'll, we'll, see, we'll have to see. I mean, and I think this year will. Well, I and think also, free who, tra- do you, in a who weird do you consider? Way. Who do you consider an asset? Is like who is tradable in this? Pascal becomes interesting. A few in, of the other in things. A, in a way, if you freeze frame it here, like I, I'd almost want to. If I had the option to um, freeze frame trade value, um, and I was the Warriors, I would want to freeze frame it here because I, I think D'Angelo Russell. He actually looked like somebody that a lot of GMs are excited about and would pay that salary for it now. I don't know if his two-pointer percentage is going to uh, come close to being uh, what it was. Uh, So I'd almost want to freeze frame it here where it looks like he is a star that's about to enter his prime and GMs can sell that to their owner and they're into it um, because I would fear – just running Russell out more for for more losses and maybe a dip in production. But right now, he would be viewed as an asset right now, just based on how he started the season. Um, and then Pascal. Now, I, I, I have no idea how Pascal is going to perform over the course of the year, but he is currently uh, risen to the level of asset. Now, beyond that, not really much, not really much else to speak of. But those two guys plus a lottery pick potentially i think you're in business and by you the might, way you top might not five, top top five pick you might probably. not be in business for somebody like Giannis, but you might be in business for a next level down person which would be a huge change and so the warriors have but, to but if Giannis is saying it's warriors or bust then you know yeah. what are you going to do from yeah, the bucks that's, that's an, interesting, bucks an interesting question um and then but you know the next year down maybe get in there but it is worth worth noting that the Warriors window with Steph, Clay, and Draymond as their best players, 
that window is either narrow or non-existent. Now, if the goal is to win a championship, if it's, if it's to be competitive, then yeah, you could probably do it. But then, then you start to get into the question of, well, do you go for the best long-term player? So you, maybe you sacrifice ceiling for a longer competitiveness. And I, I think that's why you go best player available if you can't make that really big difference. Okay. And you, what about- and, and you don't focus as much on the fit with Steph and Clay or Draymond or anything like that. And if you can find if the best player available happens to fit better, then more power to him. Okay, so what about this idea? And I, I don't have committed to memory um, what the Wolves' uh, draft pick situation is going forward. So maybe you know that on hand. Um, but so what about I'm, – I'm looking at the situation, and I believe that the Warriors need another wing. And wings are really hard to get. They are the most coveted position. Uh, it would be difficult for them to trade for one. Um, and we've established that if you try to draft one, you're going to have to wait nearly a, maybe a half decade for the guy to return some some real value, and that's not going to work for your timeline. So do you potentially trade Russell? And this has been mocked as a trade idea, but just hear me out. You trade Russell, and who knows how the salaries are matching. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about eventually. Um, for Covington and ring more draft picks out of the Wolves because the Wolves seem to be absolutely crazy about D'Angelo Russell and want him very badly to to pair up with his his friend Carl Anthony Towns. What about that? You know, that's that's a play for the present because you get your wing, um, and it's a play for the future somewhat, and it mitigates losing the asset because maybe you get a first rounder, maybe you get more than that in addition. What about that? Now we get into the difference of opinion between yours truly and the Warriors front office. I would do a trade like that, but I also would not have acquired D'Angelo Russell the way that the Warriors did. And so you get into that real challenge. So I I think that Covington is a fascinating piece for the Warriors specifically along the idea, especially if they disagree with me, that they think the Curry, Thompson, Draymond core is good enough especially let's say let's say a certain other forward happens to re-sign with the Warriors next summer well then you're basically putting Robert Covington in the Harrison Barnes role but he's better defensively and probably a little the the offensive limitations are you know in some ways similar they're both inconsistent three-point shooters I'm not saying the Kevin Durant role because we know we know how that goes and so then the question becomes well Curry Thompson Green Iguodala, those players are not the same guys now that they were in 2015 and 2016. Totally fair. And yeah. and so is that team, and, and obviously the league landscape has changed dramatically. Remember, they benefited well, from a hurt uh, Cleveland team in 15 and then in 16, well, and, everything and let, and let's But let's combine it with something else. Doing such a potential deal opens a lot of flexibility, perhaps, for what kind of guy you want to draft because now there isn't that particular logjam. Well, and that, and now you can now you can go straight best player available. Yes, and it doesn't. It and if they work out, great. You can play them as much or as little as you need to. Yeah, which is a yeah, really you, powerful thing. You, you want to go with Nico Mannion as an heir apparent to Steph, who can learn under him. You can go that direction if you want. Potentially, you want to go Anthony Edwards, who can play effectively uh, at a two guard size, or, or um, that that Florida guy whose clips in your piece were horrifying in a good way. <laughs> Scotty, Scotty Lewis. Lewis. I mean, I mean, I don't think Scotty Lewis is going to be, um, I mean, I I might want, I mean, Scotty Lewis might be more exciting for a team that's drafting a little later on because his struggle shooting, I do think are going to knock him down the draft board some, but man, do I love watching the way that guy plays defense. He is just, this is a whole other topic where I think some of the greatest defensive players 
aren't as good offensively because they are, they are just pulsating with so much energy that they don't have the touch when they shoot. And I feel that way about old Scotty Lewis, that he's just so revved up and ready to destroy that sometimes the creative powers are uh, hindered. But uh, yeah, love Scotty Lewis in Florida. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, 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 I like the idea of it potentially because it, it, it allows you to take whichever guy makes sense for you in this draft. And maybe that wouldn't be Mannion because of the whole Steph thing and you wouldn't get enough reps. I think Mannion's been underrated. Um, I'm no draft guru, but some of what's been said about him, people might be uh, stereotyping because I, I've heard lack of athleticism. And if you saw that dunk last night, I, I don't I don't see the lack of athleticism with with Mannion. He just looks well, he just looks awesome. And, and but there, yeah. there's an interesting I mean, there were elements of this. And I wonder how even though they're different physically, how Trey Young's success will affect how people think about Mannion. Yeah. The idea like if you can play, you can play. And passing ability, shooting ability, you know, all those sorts of things. Like the you could make an argument that as long as you can like get by your guy enough, if you can do other things, the overwhelming physicality of a lead guard is actually in some ways it can be used a lot now, but I think it's less mandatory now than it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And there's a realization that those I mean, somebody said I'm, I might be scooping a, an article idea that it's effectively um, a one nine five league. And what was meant by that is you get a one uh, point guard and you get a five, you get your big. And then the rest of the roster is just filled out with guys who flex in between those positions. Um, and I think for whatever reason, what we're seeing is it's thought that. Yeah, okay, switching is great. You want switchy guys, but the offensive responsibilities tend to be better optimized by some of these shorter guys for whatever reason, and that's okay. It's okay to have that guy. It's the specific one spot. And um, it's it's fine. And the success of Trey Young would, would maybe speak to that. Yeah, it definitely could. A- anything else you want to discuss? I mean, I feel like you and I could talk forever, but anything else that you feel let's, that is pressing that you think listeners would really enjoy? No, I, I, I think that's about it. Um, I can't come up with anything else. I'm excited about uh, the NBL. I would recommend it. I'm not being paid by them, but the level of competition is lower. I mean, this is an interesting thing to me, Danny, that – Euro League is a cut above NBL, but man, do I prefer watching NBL over Euro League. And I don't know what that is. Maybe I'm just not experienced enough, but there's something about NBL that just feels the, the Aussies. It just feels a little more relaxed and fun. There's a little bit of isolation play, even though it's more of a team game, perhaps, than the NBA. In Euro League teams I watch, or uh, Tel Aviv Maccabi when I'm watching uh, Denny Advija. Um, is just so dictatorial and it's almost it's too much passing. It's this whole weird aesthetic thing where you would think that the height of team play was good, but it's almost too much of it. And um, at least in the NBL, I can watch Bryce Cotton of all people just dominate and put up 30 points. So um, I've been enjoying that. And I've also been enjoying and it's voyeuristic. It's an invasion of privacy. But man, I love the live timeout feed 
in the NBL, which they also sometimes have in European games as well, where you actually see the coach calling the play and saying exactly what play is going to be run before it happens. That's awesome. I would love to bring that to the NBA, even though I know it's an invasion of privacy. Yeah, definitely interesting. Something I would like to get into. I think that wouldn't necessarily violate my my scouting principles. But even then, I, as I said last year with Zion, I could totally do that. So thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure, my friend. Always a pleasure, man. Uh, celebrate 10 years of friendship at some point. Yeah. In the very near future. <laughs> Talk to you later, Danny. Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for taking the time to come on. You can and should read his work at The Athletic. Lots of great stuff, both Warriors and broader NBA. You can also listen to the House of Strauss podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter at Sherwood Strauss, S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S, and... Love having him on, wanted to do something kind of big picture-y, and Ethan was a great person to do that with. Still haven't decided exactly when I'm going to go more team-specific, all that kind of stuff, but it's probably coming in the relatively near term. Probably not next week, I already have a guest lined up, but after that, I'm guessing sometime around then. If you want to support the show, there are a ton of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that is particularly great for Real GM Radio because... It comes out whenever I have the time, so you can't get into a habit of just checking it. So if you subscribe, it'll pop up in your podcast player whenever I put out a new episode. You can also spread the word, word of mouth. You like a single episode, you like the series, tell people in person, social media, however you see fit. And also leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. Totally understand if it's not. And if you want to be super awesome and you use something else like I do, then you can leave a review both places. And that just helps people find the show. And that's incredibly important. But the single most important thing you can do to support this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag. Use that familiar podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, which is fantastic. As I said before next week's episode hopefully hopefully fingers crossed is lined up but you never know so i'm not going to say who it is or anything like that but i am very excited about it and if you want to keep touch with my thoughts on more day-to-day matters dunked on is a great place for that nate and i are still going normally five days a week with that we did a great all decade the start of our all decade package we're going to be doing stuff throughout this season reflecting on this decade and we did best individual games and best individual series performances both of which were really fun and we have just a a armada of different ideas that we're going to do over the course of this year so enjoy that also my written work at the athletic have a couple things in the works right now that should be pretty fun and i don't know exactly when they'll come out but i'm guessing early next week and then if you have any feedback on this show good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to do that if you take the time to write it i will take the time to read it i don't promise that i'll respond but i do try my best to and it's important to me it goes to a separate place in my inbox and I make sure that I read them. And it has made the show better a lot over the last couple of years. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
Let's talk a little bit about load management. You wrote a really good piece on this for The Athletic a little while back. And one of the things that I, I really liked about how you handled it was the idea of talking to people in different phases of the NBA game and both their ideal solutions and a more practical one. Because one of the challenging elements of this is, while a lot of us can identify, let's call it a problem, even though I do agree with some of the some of the people that you got that you got quoted that you quoted that said it's not as much of a problem as, as many think. It's more of a perception thing, but perception can be an actual problem. But yeah. but let's but but the idea is kind of, I think what you were trying to get at is like, everybody has their different priorities. Everybody has their different concepts. And so while it is a, I I don't think there's a lot of argument about certain parts of this. Like, for example, let's get this out of the way. Assuming that there's something specific with Kawhi Leonard, which it certainly appears that there is, the Clippers are making the right decision for the LA Clippers and Kawhi Leonard to aggressively load manage him in the regular season. Yeah, we can. I, I think honestly, not only can the two of us as writers who aren't invested we, we are in not teams- judging their handling of Kawhi Leonard is is what we are establishing. We are not saying that that's bad. In fact, I think we would even say it is good. I would is, is unequivocally. I would. Yes. So um, then yeah, it's okay, so then the know. question becomes well where do you go from there and it it gets hard be, for a bunch of different reasons some of which are financial because you have you have BRI that is driving a lot of this I mean basketball related income is huge in terms of ownership's profit margins but also for the players they get about half of it so any reduction in the pie, whether that is reduction because of TV ratings or reduction because of you're reducing number of games a season, any number of other things becomes a challenge. And so it's, it is a really thorny issue. And I think that it's good to get people of different parts of it on the, re- or on the record, you know, maybe not attaching their names to it to kind of get a sense of where this is. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to do that. I wanted to see what the different levels thought about it. And one of the reasons why I asked is because I don't come to it hopefully with a lot of arrogance. I I think it's a problem. I'm just not so arrogant as to think I have a practical solution to it. Maybe I have a solution to it if I were dictator of the league, but nobody actually has such power. Whoever runs the league or whoever is the commissioner has to get the majority of owners to agree on the solution, and that's like herding cats. So that puts certain constraints on you. I know what I would favor – I know what I would want to do. I would want to turn the whole sport into what I see in the NBL in Australia and have these once a week. I mean, they have it's so awesome. They almost have a, a game day on the weekends where it's just that's the day that they, they have the basketball games and it's raucous and you just see such a level of energy on defense that you only really see in the playoffs uh, in the NBA. So I, I would favor that kind of system, uh, but I don't think that's happening anytime soon because you've got the inertia, you've got the different agreements, you've got the owners who don't want to risk their money and just trust that playing fewer games will result in more of it. Um, it seems really difficult to do. So it's not easy. It's not. It's difficult. But it is a problem. It, it is. And I, I I said in the article, uh, Joy Taylor, who's on Colin Coward's show, was saying that uh, it's not a problem. They just you know, it's not any different than the past. They just created a new name for it or or whatnot, or they just created a name for it. And I would say that she is right, but she is wrong because that's true. That's true. This thing has existed before and there just wasn't a name for it. But the problem is once you give a name to something, it has a certain cultural power. Uh, It's the superior wharf 
uh, hypothesis that once you name a concept, you allow people to conceptualize it and remember it and see it. I think that we've all had that in a way where if somebody introduces you to a word, then you start seeing the word everywhere. And the NBA has a branding problem when it comes to load management, that goofy term. Now people know it and they say it and it contributes to a certain impression of the league. And look, I wouldn't be chicken little yelling at the sky on these matters if the ratings were going up, but the ratings aren't going up. They're actually tanking. So I would say that this is something that the NBA needs to figure out and figure out quickly. And to to kind of your main point there, it, there is an important distinction between reality and perception because if the perception becomes pervasive enough to actually affect behavior en masse, then it matters. And really, I think the line for and and one that I'm going to be really interested is in is in person attendance, um, and you know, let's call it let's call it in, like gate revenue, all that kind of stuff, because. I, I believe that there is a justifiable reluctance on I, and I don't have to pay for games. I, I acknowledge that and so that creates yeah. a distance for we, me. We are we are so cut out of that loop. I mean how often I know it happens to me a lot, I'm guessing it happens to you where somebody asks you uh if you can get them tickets or if there's any deal on tickets and we are we are just in this sort of uh loop that doesn't even interface with any of that. Right. And be, but beyond that, the other loop that I'm in and, and I think a lot of us are is people who are interested in going to a specific game asking us, do you think player X is going to play? And I think that questioning is a lot more prevalent now. And once you get people in that mindset, then that affects their confidence in buying tickets, whether that is through you know a team site and that that really is where they see it because if it's on the secondary market then it takes a a longer i can speak to this a lot as somebody who used to work in that business you know it takes a lot longer for that to affect a team because if Mm -hmm. if, you know if the secondary market is weak then it's going to take a couple years for brokers to stop buying tickets that sort of thing but it it could be a huge thing down the road eventually if, if if it comes to pass but what i'm getting at is the idea that once people have less confidence that player X is going to play in game Y, let's say they don't, they won't know more than a day in advance, that creates real problems for the league. Even if yep. that player ends up playing, it creates real problems for the league. And so that is really where I think the rubber meets the road here. And it is completely correct. There have been people, because I'm pretty vocal about what I want here, there have been people who've said there will still be load management, there will still be strategic rest even if you got exactly what you wanted. And so that for me is everyone playing everyone twice, though I would probably expand the, I would, without decreasing the length of the season. So, you know, so what I'm saying is you play 58 games in the same length of time we have right now, that would eliminate back-to-backs. It would eliminate a lot of the other stuff. And they're, they're right. You know, there would still be strategic resting, but there would be a lot less of it. And I agree. I agree with that. I think that to me, they might be correct, but I just think that's that's an anti-reform impulse. To me, that's yeah. that's the, it's the parallel of the idea of the those who say, oh, well, you shouldn't mandate seatbelts because people will still die in car accidents. And the answer is, yeah. yeah, they still will, but it will happen a lot less, and that's good. Yes, and yes, I and there there is agree. sometimes, and sometimes it's done disingenuously. Sometimes it's done or pro- it's or, done, or it's done about- appropriately that. They, or how or how about this? I mean, this is never brought up, but we ran an actual experiment. It was an accidental experiment, but it was a natural experiment where because of the lockout, a bunch of games were chopped off the NBA schedule. We had a 66 game season. That was 
And you would have thought otherwise because there were articles about how maybe this had been a black eye for the league. Maybe the, the, it would play, the quality of basketball was significantly worse. <laughs> the quality of basketball was significantly worse. All this bad press going into it. Highest TV ratings of the post-Jordan era by far that season. Highest by far for the regular season. So that's a natural experiment that might tell you this is oversaturated and the public isn't actually demanding more of this. Indeed, they are demanding less of it. I mean, look, small sample size. I get it. You can come up with whatever considerations you want for why it happened. But that's just what happened. They rolled out 66 games. A lot more people watched. So just saying. And it's worth noting, I mean, I like to think about this as a CBA expert in terms of the two sides that negotiate the collective bargaining agreement. So for players, the argument for a shorter season is is in some ways harder because the drop in revenue directly affects them. You know, let's say players get half the pie, they just get less. But on yeah. the owner's side, that's the part that to me is really compelling because they, you know, yes, if you want to think about it in terms of revenue, sure, they're losing revenue in all likelihood. I think the loss in revenue is actually significantly less than people think. I think there is this over, from from the limited amount that I know, there is this over indulgence in how much money teams make game by game is profit. You know, that idea, yeah. the idea that, oh, well, if you have 10 fewer home games, you're losing a ton of money. I think that's a very real, a, a very overstated concern. However, worth remembering on the owner's side that, yes, it is true that their revenue side is going down. Their cost side is going down, too. Yes. And some of that is the players. Absolutely. I mean, players get about well, half it, the revenue. It's, it's, it's thought of wrong because it's always talked about owners giving up money. What they're really doing is increasing risk. That's what they're doing. Exactly. They're increasing risk. But also remember, there are certain jobs related to an NBA team where you decreasing the revenue doesn't affect how much you're paying them. You know, yeah. like, for example, I don't think general managers are going to make less money, strength and conditioning coaches, all that. But the people who they have to pay who, like, work in the arena, no. The, you can generally, if they're working fewer days, you can pay them less money. And so the reduction in revenue is not as, as severe a reduction in profit. So for me, that is a, a – but there is a risk element of this. You talked about the risk element also. I'm assuming you're meaning volatility because of fewer yeah. games. There's also a risk element because – we don't know exactly, you know, as much as economists can model and everything else, we don't know exactly how this is going to affect the per game stuff until it actually happens. So there is this uncertainty idea that, well, if you're happy with how things are and there's a change, there is a material chance that that change makes things worse. So you do that. And and so so then you don't want to do it. It's risk aversion. And I think that the the owners are in this circumstance being too risk averse more so than the mm -hmm. players are because the players actually have their their the effects of this financially for them especially outside of the stars are you know they could be fairly prominent because they're you know they're presumably will be less revenue sorry i just i just sneezed off mic right right there um i'm just looking at the the numbers and i'm saying roughly because i don't have the final reading on the average rating last season but i can project it it was it was a down year um it would appear that the average regular season rating uh in the lockout shortened season versus last season the lockout short season it was on average two million more viewers two million that's crazy well, that's and, and, crazy and let's think about it from the in-person perspective so, so, so the the proportion of it too it's three million something for last year on average so it's mm -hmm. not like that's like a small slice of the overall one i mean we're talking about 
I mean, we're talking about a huge difference between what the ratings were, what the ratings were in the lockout season versus right now. And and the other point that I want to make is from a marketing perspective, think about for in-person and and even for TV ratings, but especially in-person, the power of the argument to say for any game on the slate, this is your only chance to see X. Oh, yeah. Every single home game is the only chance that that team's season ticket holders, that team's fans get to see Giannis, get to see LeBron, get to see Zion, you know, who, whether it's a young guy that you like experience the phenomenon in person. Basically what Australia is going through right now with LaMelo Ball. <laughs> exactly. And so there is an intense value to that. My belief is that the in-person per game, like the in, the per game profit or even loss, which just basically where that will go, will actually improve for owners. And so, but yeah, the the, the local TV ratings would take a hit. Like, not local TV ratings, sorry, local TV payments because there'd be fewer games. And then the other real interesting part of this is the NBA could still fulfill their national TV contract. No problem. Like there is no yeah. credible argument that the NBA would be unable to fill their national TV requirement if they played 58 games per team per season. It would be easy to do, and they would be able to facilitate certain parts of this. Like one thing that came up in your piece, and I agree with this, even though I think some of it is a little bit problematic, is that there shouldn't be, you know, like, for example, the most extreme was this recent Kawhi one, where he was in a back-to-back, both of which were on national television. That shouldn't happen. Like, yeah. for, and especially like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, for me, it's a little bit unsettling because there is a selection difference between national TV games and non-national games. So if you make sure that star players are on national games, there is a little bit of a competitive balance issue here. But from a revenue maximization, making your broadcast partners happy and all that stuff, I totally get it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a pragmatist in that sense. I understand the limitations. And so, yes, that is something the NBA should start doing immediately is not having back-to-back national games and, you know, leaning as best they can on teams to say if a player is going to sit in a back-to-back have it be the non-national game because that contract is exceedingly important to us i think there's a lot of a lot of legitimacy to that and then the other part of it is getting rid of them entirely then it gets even easier because then you don't have to do all that schedule management it's already done because there are no back-to-backs let's let's um i agree with all that um i i want to maybe take on some of the arguments against what we're saying uh because uh, there are reasonable arguments against what Absolutely. we're saying i want to you know we're not in our ivory towers from on high uh just dictating completely sure we're correct although we suspect we're correct otherwise we wouldn't talk about it but a lot of people say one of two things one of two things i think we can talk about both the first is that you're not talking about streaming numbers you're talking about this antiquated tv rating like it's back in the day and you gotta go up to the television and turn the dial to get the channels it's a brand new world out there everybody has a supercomputer in their pocket um and you're not you're not talking about that that's you're not talking about it that's it's the new world we're in so that's one and the second argument that's made is because of this new world we're in the apple tv era people have so much more at their disposal this is just how it's going for sports. People want to watch Stranger Things. They don't necessarily want to watch uh, Grizzlies Hawks. And you're not being fair because what can the NBA do about that? It's not the NBA's fault that there are so many more entertainment options than there were in the 1990s. So I think to the first argument, um, the first argument 
that's being made there, I would say. And I have more of a decisive rebuttal to that one than to the second one. But the first argument, I would say this, um, it's not it, it, it's just not seemingly at the level that people might think it is on basketball Twitter. The rare streaming numbers that I see are not exactly impressive. Uh, the NBA, I begged them to give me some information to tell me, hey, if you've got some boffo streaming numbers, I want to hear about it because I'm about to write about your ratings problems and I want to be fair. So speak now, forever hold your peace. Tell me what are these amazing streaming numbers. They really couldn't provide it to me. And then the ones that were available, one example, for instance, it's a positive story for the NBA in many ways that the Raptors were so popular when they won the championship last season. Uh, there were, I believe, off the top of my head, over 15 million Canadians who tuned in on TSN to see that happen, that Game 6 victory. And on streaming, that number was around 150,000. So that gives you a sense of the difference in the scale we're talking about. It is still vastly preferred by sports consumers to gather around and watch the television and not watch on your phone or watch via the streaming service. Um, maybe that will be different in the future, but I don't think that's the story of the league right now. I'm Occam's razor with it. I don't see declining ratings and say to myself, this is just happening because people are watching it all on their phones. No, I think it just represents less interest. It also happens to correspond to what I see in real life outside of Twitter, that people aren't as into the NBA as they were in the recent past. Now, the second one... Well, I, let me talk briefly about the yeah. first one, because yeah. the other the other component of this that is important to acknowledge is that when we're talking, as we have for portions of this in terms of BRI and other things, if it's harder to monetize streaming than TV... Then, what does it matter? Then, it's then a tree, it, tree falling in the forest. If you yeah, can't monetize it, did it fall? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I mean, from the NBA's perspective, I do kind of get that. Now, there is there is a counter to that of the NBA could be better at monetizing it. And I mean, I, we could do an entire podcast on League Pass as a product and everything else. And I don't really feel like doing that right now. But you can get into that. I'll instead let you talk about the second thing. Yeah, the second thing is a pretty good argument. And I think there's truth to it. Um, it just seems to be impacting the sports differently. So the argument is basically that in this new streaming world, people have better entertainment options. So many people have cut the cord, and this is killing sports ratings everywhere. The thing is, it's not killing sports ratings everywhere. It seems to be killing the sports or hurting the sports that aren't scarce, that have games that fill out a schedule, but these games are not necessarily events. So what you are seeing is declining ratings for the NHL, declining ratings for the MLB, declining ratings for the NBA. Um, I agree. I, I Again, this is a difficult issue to solve. Uh, it just seems that if you look at the lesson of this, you would then look to the NFL and you would look to college football. They are doing fine. They have as much, if not more, viewership than they had back in the day in the recent past, in the 1990s, whatever you want to call it. I mean, more viewership because they have the same share and the country has way more people. Uh, the NBA has lost share and has fewer people watching than back in the 90s when more people lived in the United States. So that's the argument I would make. I, I would say that the NBA is suffering comparable losses to the other sports that have a ton of games, but that doesn't mean that all sports are going to be impacted by it. To me, I think the lesson is you need to make your games an event. You need fewer games. You need them on a schedule. If you do that, I know it's really hard. I am a pragmatist. I, I don't say, Adam Silver, you're an idiot. 
how have you not gotten this done? Uh, but I would say that those are where the trend lines are going. That's where the wind is blowing. And in a perfect world, uh, a far-sighted world, it's what they would be trying to do. And I wouldn't necessarily go as far as, as some have said. And I, and I can see the merit behind it. You've talked about the idea of having games on specific days of the week. What I would do is load specific days and then have fewer games on the other ones because then it makes it easier to fulfill a national TV contract. So kind of, you know, I don't know exactly what the structure would be, but, you know, most teams play, let's say it's Saturday or Sunday, whichever one of those, and then Tuesday, Thursday or something like that, you know, three games a week. And But then you have, you know, a sprinkling of games Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and you like yeah, those could be opportunities to showcase young players or do do some other things. But like that structure, I think, could work really well. What do you think of and to name drop a bit? I asked David Stern about this and I won't tell you the response because maybe maybe I want to put that in an article. Maybe I want to tease that. But what do you think of the idea of if you said, hey, I've got to increase interest in the regular season and I can't cut games. Um, the home team in a playoff series now gets five games at home instead of four to ramp up that advantage and prevent teams from taking it lightly um, during the regular season. Is that an idea that has some potential or is that too radical and has too many downsides? I think it has too many downsides. It is definitely, you know, the way that I think about this is all ideas are good ideas to have because Mm. it creates incentive. I would be more supportive of the idea that the home, the higher seed can pick their opponent, which is another competitive benefit. It doesn't change the home road balance, especially five two would be a little bit extreme. But I like it. I and I, I mean that sort of and also I mean that gets into all of the crazy stuff in terms of drama that people love. Of oh, can you imagine the fodder? Not only just for people like us. But for casual fans of, oh my God, who are they going to pick? And I think that would foster in- interest in the end of the regular season too, because then these fans of of teams or just of the league are going to watch those bottom, let's say the bottom four teams in the East, and say, oh, who should who should the Bucks pick? I think people would go crazy for that. I I love it. Um, I think it's better than the five of seven, and it would add to the drama. And it's one of those. Why, why not? And if we will carp about the NBA, I do not understand the reforms. I mean, look, they're they're reform minded. I'm, they're not they're not anti reform. I just don't understand a lot of the reforms they implement. I was not sitting around and going, "Oh my God, I want a coach's challenge." That is what I want. That's what I want. Completely well, it, it, up it the also of the game. it also <laughs> runs directly against the idea that the NBA has done some good reforms going towards consist making the time of game shorter and a little bit more consistent, which is good for TV purposes and it's good yep. for for in person crowds. Oh, we're going to add in something else that it will theoretically help get calls right, but it also takes a bunch of time. And the, the craziest one is okay. So the fast break foul. Uh, yeah, the clear yeah. path. Your your yeah, yeah. your old buddy. It's it, I mean it's the, it's the best criticism that the How NBA is has this not incorporated. Not fixed? How is this not fixed? What are we doing? This is what year are we on? This is crazy. This is completely insane. The whole purpose of this is that it was making the game boring when guys would grab a dude who was going to have a dunk. So you wanted to have something that would stop it from happening, but then they grind the game to a halt for a lengthy replay review when every ref knows when somebody's getting grabbed to prevent a dunk. They can just make that call subjectively. That's fine. Just do that. And what, they're, what they're, are we doing? They're, but they're also it's it's they're two. <laughs> Two different other components that drive me completely insane with it. So one is the ideal situation is to not have those fouls come in in the first place. And yes. this, so the way you do that is you make it so that those fouls, however we want to define it, 
it's two shots in the ball, one shot. I think one shot in the ball would probably be enough. And then they're not going to happen anymore. You know, like if you change it so that the team basically gets an automatic point and they still get the ball, players aren't going to do those fouls anymore. It's that for now, having them in the ha- having forcing a half court possession versus a dunk is an easy choice. Once you make it just, a harder choice, it doesn't happen. So that's I one. Just, part. I, I I think I'm I'm ranting about it because when I saw it the first time, I thought, oh, they're going to fix this. This is going to get fixed. But because nobody's clamoring for it, there's no look. I'm anti replay review. I'm staunchly anti replay review. But there are people who like replay review and will argue that one. And I understand it. I understand the perspective. Where, who 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 demand what what I, why why is this happening? <laughs> yeah, that that's a big one. And then and then the other part of it that's so shocking to me is that they haven't instituted a time limit on replay reviews. Yes, getting the call right is getting the call right is important. But if you can't figure it out in thirty seconds, then you just I'm, I'm, I'm anti the whole thing. I, I understand that there are counter arguments. I, I reserve my angry yelly rants for the the uh, the, to- clear the, 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 the clear path foul. Clear path foul. That's review. fair. But but replay review, I'm staunchly against it. I truly hate it, but I understand that I am not everybody and other people disagree and, uh, and they want to they wanna get the call right. I think there are more downsides and upsides to the whole thing. I don't like grinding the game to a halt. As uh hey, refs sometimes get calls wrong. That's part of life. It's human error. As a superstar small forward once said to me, grow up. I think we could all live. We could all live with the mistakes. In the nineteen nineties refs got calls wrong we complained about it we got mad and guess what everybody survived it was okay i don't think that we need to stop the game to retroactively referee it perfect can be the enemy of good it absolutely can be one other quick note on that before we move on is i would like to see a reform in terms of just how they say who the ball is out on the nba has the rule that basically whichever thing touched it last that's who it's out on when i was trained as a referee in soccer the idea was basically who is the reason the ball went out of bounds as opposed to yes who did it technically oh, touch this last? is another perfect enemy of good thing that's exactly happened where, because the where end, the it, nba's current rule leads to these terrible video reviews uh, because they have to see oh did it but, touch a, a a little cell on their finger ironic? this is a thing that nobody talks about but ironically refs are better at calling the spirit of the rule in the moment than they are when they are right, just like uh, clear, path. You, yeah. clear path is so much easier to call as an intent call than an actual factual like is this yeah. guy two steps further it's it's a way easier call and it gets to what you want yeah it's not gonna be perfect every yeah, single time just, and there are gonna be mistakes but that is but the mistakes that you get in that you know it's the, the idea is like you know false positives false negatives you can get in that idea of like what is what is the worst case scenario and for me the worst case scenario is what we currently have which are these replay reviews that don't really mean much yeah the, and and again they don't call it according to the spirit and then you've got these weird things where you can retroactively ref one way but not the other way so if a guy hits another guy's hand and the ball goes out then you've changed the call because it turns out that his hand touched the ball yeah, but last but you can't but review the foul it's it's completely yeah, yeah. insane. Yeah, yeah. This is complete, in my opinion, madness driven by this uh, impulse to make everything neat and tidy. And they are not prioritizing entertainment. I mean, entertainment is the whole reason this thing exists. And yes, there should be some integrity. Yes, the ref should try to get the call right in the moment. They should be hired according to their ability to do so. But in the context right now, and I, I, I bang on this drum, I do it. 
in part because I care and also because those are the results. If if the league was doing great, if it was thriving, if ratings were surging, I would not be saying any of this or at least saying it so loud. But it's going the other way, so I think it's time to analyze everything. Everything's on the table. I think the main issue, the main issue, um, and everybody has their theories, the main issue is just the scarcity issue. But all this stuff is on the table. It's up for review, replay review even, for us to see if it's working. I would still be complaining anyway. And yeah, almost, me too. Almost that's as, a almost as I'm, specifically. I'm so, I, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a total liar. That, that, that's, just, the way, yeah. that's the way it works. Uh, let's talk briefly about the draft. I, I really liked an exercise that you did for a recent piece. I think this is just the nature of covering the Warriors this year. You have to look for different angles, something that you and I are familiar with going back to the early part of this decade, because time is a flat circle, of looking at it from the draft perspective. And something I liked that you did was looking at, you know, looking at these players potentially as fits for Golden State specifically because they're in such an unusual circumstance, but also using the the overriding situation that if a player is really good, it's still going to work. Yeah, yeah, um, it's 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 difficult. They are on an they are in an unusual timeline, um, and I think they favor BPA. I do. I think they do, and that's just from some conversations. Um, now I don't know at this juncture who they think that guy is. But as I said earlier, and as I wrote in the article, um, what's tricky for them is that I think they need a wing, but if they draft a wing, by the time that wing develops, all these other players will be out of their primes. <laughs> so I think you can start doing some deduction um, about what they need to do. And that's what I outlined in, in this article, that knowing that, then you can maybe figure out how some of the other stuff might shake out. Um, do you have any way, by the way, Danny, do you have any draft picks you like already in this early going or guys who've caught your eye or anybody where you would think, oh, I could see him on the Warriors? Not yet. I, I haven't really watched much college. I So this is a, a shift that happened for me a couple of years ago where I realized watching sporadic college basketball actually made me a worse analyst because huh. of sample bias. Because I would watch a single game of a player and it would affect my analysis. And so I actually watch a lot less college basketball in season now. But what I've done is I've shifted and do a lot more film when I do film. So for example, Edwards, I'm going to, instead of watching, you know, like uh, it's a random Tuesday night and he's playing on ESPN. Instead of watching that game, I will watch, I'll try to watch an extra half hour to an hour of his assorted clips once the season ends. And what I think that's it. That's a good process. Yeah, I, I mean, but it is less fun right now. I'd be it, it would be fun to invest, and I did break that own rule with Zion last year because I couldn't help myself because yeah. he was he was so transfixing. And with Luca, I would watch sometimes with Synergy or whatever. I would watch his his games, either the Slovenia stuff for the well, I mean, also international competitions of their own rules because they're. I, sometimes we do them for Duck Don, and sometimes I just want to watch. But I, I, um, I enjoy it. I like trying to see what's coming next. Uh, right. Like, what, and, and, what, what do you? What would you do? Okay, so this is a tough question, and it's one that the commenters are asking me after I wrote this article. Uh, what would you do if you were the Warriors? I mean, what's what? What is the the two tiered plan? I mean, obviously there's one plan where you're hoping to pull off, as I have termed it, the hostile makeover. Uh, of pre-agency, right, where you make over the disgruntled superstars team with assets and youth and you get the disgruntled superstar uh, because they want to go to your team 
as we have seen with Anthony Davis and the Lakers. Um, you know, if you get that with Giannis, you know, that's that is plan A. But, you know, what's 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 plan B? You know, what what do you think what do you think they should be doing? I can I can float a, a few different ideas. Yeah. So in, in terms of the the theory of it, to me priority one would be if you can get that prime or near prime star with the assets they have. And I think the Warriors, other than this pick, their asset base is actually pretty weak. They don't, Jacob Evans hasn't set the world on fire. A lot of their other guys, DeAndre uh, Russell. I don't know if the asset base is weak. We'll, we'll, see. we'll have to see. I mean, and I think this year will, well, and also who do you consider an asset is like, who is tradable in this? Pascal becomes interesting. A few in, of the other in, a, in a way, if you freeze frame it here, like I'd almost want to, if I had the option to um, freeze frame trade value, um, and I was the Warriors, I would want to freeze frame it here because I, I think D'Angelo Russell, he actually looked like somebody that a lot of GMs are excited about and would pay that salary for it. Now, I don't know if his two-pointer percentage is going to uh, come close to being uh, what it was. Uh, so I'd almost want to freeze frame it here where it looks like he is a star that's about to enter his prime and GMs can sell that to their owner and they're into it um, because I would fear just running Russell out more for, for more losses and maybe a dip in production. But right now he would be viewed as an asset right now, just based on how he started the season. Um, and then Pascal. Now I, I, I have no idea how Pascal is going to perform over the course of the year, but he is currently uh, risen to the level of asset. Now, Beyond that, not really much. Not really much else to speak of. But those two guys plus a lottery pick potentially. I think you're in business. And you by might, the way, you top, might not, five, top top five pick. You might probably. not be in business for somebody like Giannis, but you might be in business for a next level down person, which would be a huge change. And so the Warriors have. But, to but if Giannis is saying it's Warriors or bust, then you know yeah. what are you going to do yeah, from the Bucks? That's, Bucks, that's from an, interesting, Bucks an interesting question. Um, and then, but you know, the next tier down, maybe get in there. But it is worth worth noting that the Warriors' window with Steph, Clay, and Draymond as their best players, that window is either narrow or non-existent. Now, if the goal is to win a championship, if it's, if it's to be competitive, then yeah, you could probably do it. But then, then you start to get into the question of, well, do you go for the best long-term player? So you, maybe you sacrifice ceiling for a longer competitiveness. And I, I think that's why you go best player available if you can't make that really big difference. Okay. And you, what about... and, and you don't focus as much on the fit with Steph and Clay or Draymond or anything like that. And if you can find if the best player available happens to fit better, then more power to him. Okay, so what about this idea? And I, I don't have committed to memory um, what the Wolves uh, draft pick situation is going forward. So maybe you know that on hand. Um, but... So what about I'm I'm looking at the situation and I believe that the Warriors need another wing and wings are really hard to get. They are the most coveted position. Uh, it would be difficult for them to trade for one. Um, and we've established that if you try to draft one, you're going to have to wait nearly a, maybe a half decade for the guy to return some some real value. And that's not going to work for your timeline. So do you potentially trade Russell? And this has been mocked as a trade idea, but just hear me out. You trade Russell, and who knows how the salaries were matching. I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about eventually. Um, for Covington and ring more draft picks out of the Wolves because the Wolves seem to be absolutely crazy about D'Angelo Russell and want him very badly to, to pair up with his, his friend, Carl Anthony Towns. What about that? You know, that's, that's a play for the present because you get your wing. 
Um, and it's a play for the future somewhat, and it mitigates losing the asset because maybe you get a first rounder, maybe you get more than that in addition. What about that? Now we get into the difference of opinion between yours truly and the Warriors front office. I would do a trade like that, but I also would not have acquired D'Angelo Russell the way that the Warriors did. And so you get into that real challenge. So I I think that Covington is a fascinating piece for the Warriors specifically along the idea, especially if they disagree with me, that they think the Curry, Thompson, Draymond core is good enough especially let's say let's say a certain other forward happens to re-sign with the Warriors next summer well then you're basically putting Robert Covington in the Harrison Barnes role but he's better defensively and probably a little the the offensive limitations are you know in some ways similar they're both inconsistent three-point shooters I'm not saying the Kevin Durant role because we we know how that goes and so then the question becomes well Curry Thompson Green Iguodala, those players are not the same guys now that they were in 2015 and 2016. Totally fair. And yeah. and so is that team, and, and obviously the league landscape has changed dramatically. Remember, they benefit well, from a hurt uh, Cleveland team in 15 and then in 16, well, and, everything and let, and let's But let's combine it with something else. Doing such a potential deal opens a lot of flexibility, perhaps, for what kind of guy you want to draft because now there isn't that particular logjam. Well, and yes. and now you can now you can go straight best player available. Yes, and it doesn't. It and if they work out, great. You can play them as much or as little as you need to. Yeah, which is a yeah, really you, powerful thing. You, you want to go with Nico Mannion as an heir apparent to Steph, who can learn under him. You can go that direction if you want. Potentially, you want to go Anthony Edwards, who can play effectively uh, at a two guard size, or, or um, that that Florida guy whose clips in your piece were horrifying in a good way. <laughs> Scotty, Scotty Lewis. Lewis. I, mean, yeah. I mean, I don't think Scotty Lewis is going to be. Um, I mean, I, I might want. I mean, Scotty Lewis might be more exciting for a team that's drafting a little later on because his struggle shooting, I do think, are going to knock him down the draft board some. But man, do I love watching the way that guy plays defense. He is just. I, this is a whole other topic where I think some of the greatest defensive players aren't as good offensively because they are, they are just pulsating with so much energy that they don't have the touch when they shoot. And I feel that way about old Scotty Lewis, that he's just so revved up and ready to destroy that sometimes the creative powers are uh, hindered. But uh, yeah, love Scotty Lewis in Florida. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, 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 I like the idea of it potentially because it, it, it allows you to take whichever guy makes sense for you in this draft. And maybe that wouldn't be Mannion because of the whole Steph thing and he wouldn't get enough reps. I think Mannion's been underrated. Um, I'm no draft guru, but some of what's been said about him, people might be uh, stereotyping because I, I've heard lack of athleticism. And if you saw that dunk last night, I, I don't I don't see the lack of athleticism with with Mannion. He just looks well, he just looks awesome. And, and but there, yeah. there's an interesting. I mean, there were elements of this, and I wonder how. Even though they're different physically, how Trey Young's success will affect how people think about Mannion. Yeah. The idea, like, if you can play, you can play, and passing ability, shooting ability, you know, all those sorts of things. Like the phys- you could make an argument that as long as you can like get by your guy enough. If you can do other things, the overwhelming physicality of a lead guard is actually, in some ways, it can be used a lot now, but I think it's less mandatory now than it used to be. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's true. And there's a realization that those, I mean, somebody said, 
I might be scooping a, an article idea that it's effectively um, a one nine five league. And what was meant by that is you get a one uh, point guard and you get a five, you get your big. And then the rest of the roster is just filled out with guys who flex in between those positions. Um, and I think for whatever reason, what we're seeing is it's thought that, yeah, OK, switching is great. You want switchy guys, but the offensive respons- responsibilities tend to be better optimized by some of these shorter guys for whatever reason, and that's okay. It's okay to have that guy. It's the specific one spot, and um, it's it's fine. And the success of Trey Young would, would maybe speak to that. Yeah, it definitely could. A- anything else you want to discuss? I mean, I feel like you and I could talk forever, but anything else that you feel let's, that is pressing that you think listeners would really enjoy? No, I, I, I think that's about it. Um, I can't come up with anything else. I'm excited about uh, the NBL. I would recommend it. I'm not being paid by them, but the level of competition is lower. I mean, this is an interesting thing to me, Danny, that EuroLeague is a cut above NBL. But man, do I prefer watching NBL over EuroLeague. And I don't know what that is. Maybe I'm just not experienced enough. But there's something about NBL that just feels, the the Aussies, it just feels a little more relaxed and fun. There's a little bit of isolation play, even though it's more of a team game, perhaps, than the NBA. In EuroLeague teams I watch, or uh, Tel Aviv Maccabi, when I'm watching uh, Denny Advija, um, is just so dictatorial and it's almost, it's too much passing. It's this whole weird aesthetic thing where you would think that the height of team play was good, but it's almost too much of it. And, um, at least in the NBL, I can watch Bryce Cotton of all people just dominate and put up 30 points. So, um, I've been enjoying that. And I've also been enjoying, and it's voyeuristic. It's an invasion of privacy, but man, I love the live timeout feed in the NBL, which they also sometimes have in European games as well, where you actually see the coach calling the play and saying exactly what play is going to be run before it happens. That's awesome. I would love to bring that to the NBA, even though I know it's an invasion of privacy. Yeah, definitely interesting. Something I would like to get into. I think that wouldn't necessarily violate my my scouting principles. But even then, I, as I said last year with Zion, I could totally do that. So thank you so much for taking the time. Always a pleasure, my friend. Always a pleasure, man. Uh, celebrate 10 years of friendship at some point. Yeah. In the very near future. <laughs> Talk to you later, Danny. Thanks again to Ethan Sherwood-Strauss for taking the time to come on. You can and should read his work at The Athletic. Lots of great stuff, both Warriors and broader NBA. You can also listen to the House of Strauss podcast, and you can follow him on Twitter at Sherwood Strauss, S-H-E-R-W-O-O-D-S-T-R-A-U-S-S, and... Love having him on, wanted to do something kind of big picture-y, and Ethan was a great person to do that with. Still haven't decided exactly when I'm going to go more team-specific, all that kind of stuff, but it's probably coming in the relatively near term. Probably not next week, I already have a guest lined up, but after that, I'm guessing sometime around then. If you want to support the show, there are a ton of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that is particularly great for Real GM Radio because... It comes out whenever I have the time, so you can't get into a habit of just checking it. So if you subscribe, it'll pop up in your podcast player whenever I put out a new episode. You can also spread the word, word of mouth. You like a single episode, you like the series, tell people in person, social media, however you see fit. And also 
leaving a rating, leaving a review in the podcast player of your choosing. It's great if it's Apple Podcasts. Totally understand if it's not. And if you want to be super awesome and you use something else like I do, then you can leave a review both places. And that just helps people find the show. And that's incredibly important. But the single most important thing you can do to support this show and any other that has them is check out our sponsors for this episode. That is betonline.ag. Use that familiar podcast one promo code for a 50% sign up bonus, which is fantastic. As I said before, next week's episode, hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, is lined up, but you never know. So I'm not going to say who it is or anything like that, but I am very excited about it. And if you want to keep touch with my thoughts on more day-to-day matters. Dunked On is a great place for that. Nate and I are still going normally five days a week with that. We did a great all-decade, the start of our all-decade package. We're going to be doing stuff throughout this season reflecting on this decade, and we did best individual games and best individual series performances, both of which were really fun, and we have just a, a armada of different ideas that we're going to do over the course of this year, so enjoy that. Also, my written work at The Athletic have a couple of things in the works right now that should be pretty fun, and I don't know exactly when they'll come out, but I'm guessing early next week. And then, if you have any feedback on this show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to do that. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I don't promise that I'll respond, but I do try my best to. And it's important to me it goes to a separate place in my inbox and I make sure that I read them. And it has made the show better a lot over the last couple of years. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.